The Start On Demand. On demand. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this Monday morning. And 6 a.m. seems like an unusual start time for anything other than a morning radio show, now that I think about it. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but, uh, Loren, the starting gun, I guess, was fired six minutes ago for the vaccine for kids. Yeah, so if you have kids that are in that 5 to 11 year old age group you can go online right now or call one eight four four M A N V A C C Manitoba vaccination i think i'll just give the number instead one eight four four six two six eight two two two. i right at about 601 went into the system and clicked the login portion where i would then frantically try to remember what my login was six months ago i'm in a uh it's just spinning like it's a spinning white blank page where i'm in the patient portal i think but i'm not getting further than that so there might be a whole whack of people just trying to get on right now and uh you're not booking camping by the way you're booking your kids vaccination and it feels like it's got the same feeling to it right now but that could be operator air by me but yes i know doses uh arrived in ontario on last night late last night there was a shipment that came in and uh photos from the plane that landed carrying some of those doses and we're waiting to see what the earliest appointment might be in Manitoba that actually happens, because of course we need to get the, the vaccine actually in the province. And so we'll have more details on that throughout the day. But if you're looking to get your kid vaccinated and he's, he or she's under 11, they're under 11, give it a shot. Let me know how it's going for you because the wheel is still spinning right now on my computer. Yeah, I'm on the portal or I'm on the website. Uh, I, I am not going to go into the portal because there's no personal reason for me to do so. And I don't want to take up any of that bandwidth, any of those resources. So, yes, it will be fascinating, I think, for a lot of us to see how quickly I've already seen on social media people doubtful that this website is going to be taking appointments at this hour. Uh, Loren, uh, the spinning wheel of doom is maybe a good sign. Maybe it, it means a lot of people are anxious to get this happening. RFN? Yeah, I saw a number of... Uh Friends who are parents, super excited on social media. I actually had one friend who had, she made appointments last week, but I guess uh, I followed up with her yesterday and she said that the, the appointments are void. They had made the appointments through their doctors, but they had been told they would have to call back to confirm. Um, but they also, this person also pointed out um, that uh, her kids hate needles. So I wonder how, like, what about your boys, Loren? How are they with needles? Yeah, like, no one likes them. But, you know, they've had, I don't, there's some years they go in to get their shots for different vaccines. And it's the booster year or something else for MMR or meningitis or whatever else it is. And they have to get four or five of them at a time. So, you know, they, oh, wow. it's not like it, they haven't, they've been here before. So they'll just go and do it and figure it out. Just look away. I, I can't look when I get a needle. Like, I cannot look at it going in my arm. Not when I get blood drawn and not when I'm, even when I got the vaccine back in May and June, I had to just, I look the other way. Mackling? My kids don't mind the, the needles at all. And uh, personally, yeah, I don't like them. Brett, I told you a story from a long, long time ago that I will not repeat on the air this morning <laughs> just because I do not want to frighten any children. But... Uh, I had an aversion to needles based on a lengthy stay in hospital, but, uh, you know, I just look away and, yeah, I barely even uh, notice them now. So it's yeah, all good by me. Yeah, I, I, I get the, the slight aversion because 
but then I, the, more often than not, like 95% of the time, I, I go, oh, it's already done? Yes. Like when we get the flu shot, for example, and we got that a couple of weeks ago. We just bang, it's over, and you carry on with your day. So I think a lot of times we just sort of build up. It's, it's all about what we create in our heads. But it's a very exciting time for, uh, for many parents and kids. I know a lot of kids are looking forward to actually getting this done, so I think that's exciting. So, again, let us know at 204-780-6868 if this is something you are on this morning. If you're on the case, let us know how it goes. Also today, we are going to be discussing... I can't believe it's already been two years, Loren, since the Liquor Marts made uh, some those big security changes to curb theft. Yeah, and you know, we were thinking back about this. Uh, every, I think about it often, actually, because if you go in the liquor store, I'm not suggesting I'm in there often, you can decide. Um, but, you know, you go into the liquor store now, you have the process where you have to show your ID, pull down your face mask, there's someone behind the plexiglass checking to see, and then you go in, and the, it's now just sort of feels fairly normal. But I was curious just to see how this was working. And so at 7.07, we're going to share some new numbers with you that were, came to us via Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries, just about how much of an impact those security measures are having on theft way, way down, you know, from thousands of thefts or hundreds of thefts, at least down to a few dozen now um, per month. And so that's pretty incredible to see the impact that's had. But I'd also love to know from listeners just what their experiences are like with this, because two years ago, I I think lots of people witnessed thefts. I know I certainly saw people being um, detained in a liquor store once and other people did as well. It was, it was just, there was just a rash of them, November, 1919, culminating really with that young staff member who was assaulted in the store after a robbery in Tyndall Park. And that's what led to all the changes, Greg. And so I think it's really made a big difference to staff and maybe even the customer experience in a good way. I think for the most part in a good way. I know there are some folks that don't like the fact that, you know, if they're out running errands, they can't take their their youngsters into the liquor store with them because uh, if you don't have ID and if you're not of age, you're not allowed in the store. But you you sort of think about what's happened with regard to COVID-19 and having to, you know, check ID and, and maybe even uh, status. Do you have to Show your vaccine card to go in the liquor store. I don't go to the liquor store, so I don't know. It's a question. Oh, okay. You don't. Okay. Uh, So there goes my point completely out the window. But it has been uh, super easy in my estimation. I can say on one hand, I can count on one hand how many times I've used it. But yeah, and uh, hand over your ID. They check your ID. It's just like going to a nightclub. I feel super safe going in there now. It's great. Yeah, when they first introduced it, I wondered, is this going to slow things down, getting in? Um, but they, basically, soon after they introduced all these changes, that's when the pandemic hit. And uh, there's often a lineup to get in anyway, just because they can only have so many people in the store at a time. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I have absolutely no problem with the changes they made. I think it's great. I, I feel way more secure going in there now. So uh, we'll have more on that at 7.07 and at 8.07. And of course, it's Monday, which means our weekly visit with Bob Irving at 8.35. Bombers, what happened? Oh, a tragic <laughs> loss. <laughs> what happened? Fold the tent, shut down the season. It's all over, folks. Uh, the Blue Bombers <laughs> lost in Calgary. And uh, oh yeah, it's all for naught now. The Minnewasta Golf Course Clubhouse 
in Morden is considered a total loss after a fire tore through the building on Saturday. Global's Will Reimer has more. Morden's Deputy Fire Chief Tim Reimer says flames were coming through the roof of the building when crews arrived at 9.15 a.m. He says they managed to get it under control shortly after noon, but the pro shop next door sustained some damage to the siding. Uh, We probably had about 40 firefighters on scene, uh, along with uh, two bumper trucks, an aerial truck, a rescue, and some other command vehicles. Uh, We had assistance from the City of Winkler Fire Department. Reimer adds no one was injured and the cause is still under investigation. Will Reimer, Global News. This uh, was tough to see over the weekend. I mean, it's obvious. Anytime you see uh, fire attack a building like this, it's it's tough to see. But Minnewasta is one of my favorite places to golf. You know, I know that uh, it probably gets annoying listening to me talk about golf all the time. But this is golf isn't just a game that I love. It's how I explore southern Manitoba. A lot of the places I've visited, probably I might have never gone there if not for golf. When I think of places like Hecla or Lac du or whatever, or Morden. This, Minnewasta, going to that golf course, that was the first time I'd ever been to Morden. And their clubhouse, their restaurant, it's a beautiful property. So to see the flames take over that entire building, um, that was, it was sad and because uh, it's and it, it's not just bad for the golf course, but Greg, that's bad for that's tough for the the whole community of Morden. Absolutely, it is. When you have an iconic golf course like Minnewasta, it draws people from all over Manitoba and in normal times North Dakota. I've seen Minnewasta featured on North Dakota television in the past. Oh wow! It's one of the most beautiful golf courses anywhere in the you know in the region in the tri-state area. If you'd like to use the American uh, conversation, <laughs> so yeah, this is something that will be devastating, be difficult for the economy. Loren, uh, you know, Minnedosa, uh, Brett pointed it out. The the golf course is also a place where people like to go when their uh, restaurants are up and running. Uh, typically, you have great food at the golf courses, and they are a genuine driver of the economy. Oh, absolutely! I think more than that too. There's that thing of pride that exists in many, uh, maybe could be in the suburb you live in it could be wherever you you're you call home the small town and it's something that you always add to the list like yeah like i live there because it has this and that and golf courses are often thrown in even if you never golf you know i often tell people where i live oh yeah no we have a golf course and i've hit it up three times in the 10 years i've been here it's not that the golfing is important to me it's kind of what built you build your community around you have all these key central points that draw someone in because you talk about the economy but again you talk about that source of pride so i feel for the people of Morden this morning. Um, that's, a, that's a tough one. I know it's winter and you're not getting out there right now, but you'll want to get out there in the spring and you'll want to be able to get out there and, and hit it up the way you used to, Brett. So hopefully they'll be able to recover and rebuild and get you back out there in April 1st. Let's go for an April 1st date for you this year. And Mayor uh, Brandon Burley in Morden uh, was tweeting on the weekend that their newly commissioned fire tanker saw it's for, and this is right from his tweet. Our newly commissioned fire tanker saw its first action this morning as the golf course restaurant was lost. These difficult-to-reach properties, industrial fires, and newly annexed rural properties are why this tanker was needed. So at the very least, that's good that they had that piece of equipment, and maybe that's what helped say at least keep the pro shop intact. Like it, it, it sustained some minor damage, but without that equipment, maybe the whole thing would have gone kaput.
Greg, based on what you're seeing on Twitter, looks like many people experiencing the frustration trying to book their kids a vaccine shot. Well, somebody was listening to the show. Life-changing shot and the registration site functions just like camping registration. Wish I could say it's really surprising. Glad people want the shot. But where is this rollout that they are prepared for, yes, a, a string of Twitter frustration with regard to getting in to book the vaccination for kids. Many people saying Safari was better than Chrome. Others saying the mobile site is the way to go versus the desktop site. And Loren, others uh, saying that the way to go is just to call in and book your appointments that way. I actually took about a few minutes for the wheel to spin there, and then it did get me in. Um, it was just required a bit of patience and just not clicking around too much, which I had just because I was doing other things on the show. I then had to re-register for an account, which I was surprised by just because I thought it would go under the one I had used six months ago for my own, but I did. And now I'm in my first available appointment. It says Saturday, November 27th at two o'clock at the York Avenue location for the RBC Convention Center. Now, Will we have the vaccines by Saturday at 2 o'clock here in the province? That's another part of the equation that we're waiting to figure out. But I am in, and there's a host of availabilities here. Steinbeck, Morden, I've checked. So maybe it's just a bit of patience. Maybe it's your server. Maybe it's your internet provider. And I'm just now trying to figure out if this works for the schedules that we're in. So keep trying, folks, and let us know how you're doing. 780-6868. British Columbians continue to deal with the aftermath of last week's catastrophic weather event, which washed out roads and railways. Yeah, the devastating damage to transportation infrastructure is creating a massive challenge for keeping the supply chain moving. There have been shortages of certain foods in some grocery stores. You may have even seen images of empty shelves on television, social media, elsewhere. The massive amounts of rain, Loren, the atmospheric river dumped on the West Coast, has also meant the shutdown of the pipeline, which sends Alberta fuel to the lower mainland. So that's led to supply issues, and to address that, the province has limited fuel purchases to 30 litres at the time. But the con- conservation measure, it has a, it's fueling a new problem, really. Global's Paul Johnson brings us this latest from Vancouver. This is a petrocan in the west side of Vancouver. Normally, this is a pretty quiet gas station, but as you can see, today, they're slammed. with The kind of long lineups they don't typically see here. We've been talking to drivers throughout the Lower Mainland, and most of them tell us they get it. This is an extraordinary situation, and they're going to follow the rules. But, of course, what appears to be happening is the psychology of scarcity itself. Pretty much from the moment B.C. made this announcement Friday, we saw lineups starting at gas stations throughout the Lower Mainland. So we're now faced with the possibility that the most immediate threat to the gasoline supply here may not be the delivery problem, but on the demand side with people doing panic buying. Here's BC's public safety minister, Mike Farnworth. If you can avoid travel, work from home, or take public transit for the next 10 days, you will help ensure that we have the fuel and access and means to keep responding as we need to. As soon as you start telling people to stop buying gas, they're going to start panic buying, making it a lot worse. And now all of a sudden there's going to be absolutely nothing. It's going to be there, same as all the food's going to be in the stores. And it's embarrassing to see people hoarding everything, and especially in this time when, you know. So just to recap what the situation is for drivers here in this part of British Columbia, right now limited to 30 litres per fill-up. 
This is an honor system. We don't have the police out at gas stations. Commercial and emergency vehicles, of course, are exempt. They hope that this will be normalized and they can drop this by December 1st. But of course, some of the big unknowns, how do they restore the fuel supply infrastructure? The single biggest component that we've lost is the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which delivers oil from Alberta. They're expecting they may get that up and running by the end of next week. But already they're pointing out this is the longest shutdown in that pipeline in its 70-year history. Man, and when we talk about this with people, Greg, I think one of the things that is, is hard to recognize is just when will the fix be coming? You know, how long will these conservation measures last? Would you be able to do this? You know, is, are we essentially relying on an honor system here for people to do the right thing and not take more than their share of gas? Well, not only gasoline, but food as well. Uh, as many of you know, I used to live in the Okanagan Valley. Still have some great friends there. One of my best friends lives in Vernon. And he told me that at Superstore, things have been pretty touch and go in terms of the supply of, of, of many things. He's kind of relying on his freezer. And he was relaying a story the other night. He went out. Uh, his daughter was playing volleyball. So things are, you know, uh, life is continuing mostly as normal in that part of the country. But the, they wanted some fast food. Burger King was closed. I, I'll keep my thoughts on that one to myself. Uh, Wendy's was closed also because they didn't have supplies. But guess what? McDonald's had uh, food uh, available because they are in charge of their own transportation, Brett. So it, it, it's interesting to see uh, some of the little side stories that are happening out of this and human nature. You know, if you, if you see more than you need, some of us buy, buy more than we ought to. And, and I think uh, most of us uh, buy what we need. Now, all of this is as yet another atmospheric river is bearing down on British Columbia, triggering new concerns about rain and possible flooding on both the north and south coast of the province. Environment Canada has issued a slew of winter storm, wind and rain warnings, along with special weather statements for Haida Gwaii and the north and central coast, says the system brings tropical moisture to the area. Now, meanwhile, British Columbians in flood-stricken parts of the province will be allowed to cross into the U.S. and back for some emergency purposes without a COVID-19 vaccination or PCR test. This from the federal government yesterday. Once again, with more is Paul Johnson. BC's Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth lobbied Ottawa this weekend for this. It will allow people to go across the border uh, for essential goods, in particular gasoline, and to be able to come across uh, back into Canada without that uh, PCR test. For the first time since the pandemic closed the Canada-U.S. border in March of 2020. Starting Sunday night, residents of the Lower Mainland can drive south to fill up on gas and get groceries. For British Columbians in areas where gas rationing is not happening, they'll still have to wait until Ottawa drops the PCR test requirement for short trips November 30th. But for those now digging out their Nexus cards, keep this in mind. It does not include family trips, vacations, or other types of uh, tourist activity. So, of course, at the end there, that was the voice of Bill Blair, Federal Minister for Emergency Preparedness. Of course, we're talking about what the impact there is on the store shelves when it comes to supply issues, but that's going to have a wide range of impact right across the country. <laughs> Today's topic comes from, I understand, a job interview. Were you... Looking for a new job? Oh, shh. The bosses might be listening. No, I wasn't. But somebody I know is. And one of the questions my friend got was, um, do you like to lose 
more or do you, do you hate losing more than you like to win? That's how it was phrased. Does the, does the devastation of losing affect you more than the elation of victory? And I think for a lot of us, it's the former. We do not like to lose. I know I'm in that camp. And so we were wondering about our personal experiences in sport, maybe academia, the time that you were devastated, or if you want to go positive, if you want to go all positive on us, you can do that as well. So let's go around the horn here. Cameron Poitras, let's start with you, sir. What athletic su- success? <laughs> I had absolutely none. <laughs> I was terrible. My team's never won anything. I have zero athletic talent. I am awful. I lack that killer instinct to, like, drive forward. I was always worried. I'm not going to go into the corner and and break my arm trying to get that puck. I'll let one of those other nutcases do it. I'm not going to try to, you know, I'm not going to break my arm on the football field. I was not a great athlete. I'm a terrible athlete. Uh, Unfortunately, my children will probably also have that passed on to them. Uh, So, yeah, I, I never won anything in any of my team sports. And I never really tried to win all that bad, so I guess it's uh, no harm done and no, no, no real foul. Fair enough. When's the last time you played any sports things? Well, I, you know what? I like to play tennis, and I like, uh, and I, and I do get competitive with that. But I, I hate organized sports. I hate having to go and do something once a week and being told when to do it. No, I will play when I want to play. I, I, I cannot stand. Like I couldn't play organized hockey because it's like, no, you got to be here at, at at ten o'clock on a Wednesday, and I just I sit there. Even like if it was right now, I would sit there and just be sick about it, thinking, "Oh my god, I got to go play hockey later today. It's this long," and I it would, I just sit there and I just veg on the fact that I have to play later. And so, uh, yeah, I just I don't 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 ever sign me up for a team. You don't want me on my on your team. Maybe you don't. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you on our team, Sam. <laughs> Jeff Braun, what about you? No, I'm 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 was as good as athlete as it sounds like Cam was. Uh, it didn't bother me as much as it may have bothered Cam. But uh, and I like playing sports. I played baseball as a kid and basketball in high school. But then at the end of high school, some guys in my grade we joined the Altona Men's Slow Pitch League, and it was we were these scrawny little high school kids, and all these other teams were made up of these big beefy farmer dudes. And they would just hit home run after home run after home run. <laughs> and we were, like, grinding out singles. And in two seasons, we won three games. We were just terrible at it. But we were also the team that was clearly having the most fun with it. So uh, it was a kind of a, a lose-win that way, I guess. Wow. Okay. The Farmer is laying the smackdown on JB oh, yeah. and the boys. Loren, what about you? I don't think I – like, you know uh, – Losing sucks, to be frank. We, I think we all understand that, but it, it, it sucks more when you went into something not prepared. So if you're prepared and you did, worked as hard as you could and the result wasn't what you want, you could at least say, I tried my hardest. And mine doesn't stand out for sports. It, what stands out for me is I really liked to play the piano when I was younger. My mom was always after me to practice, and but only because I'd say, no, I want to be good at this. And then she'd say, well, if you want to be good at it, you can't get good if you don't practice. And uh, I had won some competitions, and I was going into this – I think it was provincials. I'm not sure what it was. It was some higher level competition at the brand branding concert hall. And you're on the stage with this big grand piano and it's a six or seven page long piece that you had to memorize and go up there and the lights are on you. My grandma's there. My mom's there. And again, my mom said, this is like, if you're going to go into this competition, like you need to practice. Like you can't just be winging it. And I'm like, I'm good, mom. I got this. So I didn't prepare. I go in and I play like the whole song, like really well, like really in my mind anyway, I'm going along, it's happening, it's good. I'm like, yes, this is great. This is great. And then my mind went blank. 
and I could not remember how to finish the song. Oh, My no. fingers are still moving, and all of a sudden I'm just stop. And I look up, and I look up at the adjudicator and say, that's all I got. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I don't remember anything else. And I stood up and I bowed. And then I went off stage and I bawled. <laughs> like, oh, I just bawled. I was oh, like, no. oh my gosh, how did that happen? I mean, and so part of me has always remembered that because I, like, I didn't prepare, right? So it would be one thing if I had given up my all, but I didn't. And I, then I had to go into a shift at Chicken Terry's afterwards. And my mom, <laughs> my mom must have phoned my sister who was also working there because I walk in. She's like, how you doing? I'm like, not great. She's like, couldn't remember the end, eh? Like, you had, mom said you had like three bars to go. I was like, I know. I was at the very end and had nothing. So there you go. The agony of not being prepared. Question of the day at cjob.com for credit aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. If you're a parent with kids between... Five and 11 years old? Are you booking them for a COVID-19 vaccine? Your option's already done. Sometime this week, eventually, or never. Cast your vote at cjob.com. And Loren, I know you were poking around in that site. Any any uh, success yet? Yeah, success. I just needed a bit of patience, which I think both you know I don't really have. But I <laughs> I harnessed it. I harnessed it, created a... Added the kids' names, and yeah, we're all done. So it was fairly simple in the long run. and just had to work through a bit of a spinning wheel, which I think always makes people frustrated when their screen starts to have that wheel spin, and you think, uh-oh, where's this going? But the feedback I'm getting on Twitter after sharing my first attempts is that, you know, if you just have the patience, you'll get through and you'll get those appointments. Let us know, 204-780-6868, how your experience has gone if it's something that you are attempting this morning. In the meantime, the security features that went into hundreds of Manitoba liquor and lottery stores two years ago have had a significant impact in reducing the number of robberies and thefts. Back in November of 2019, you may recall liquor store thefts were happening dozens of times per day, with thieves growing more and more brazen and more dangerous, it seemed, by the week. It was two years ago this month that an employee at Tyndall Park Liquor Mart was knocked unconscious during a violent robbery, and not long after that, Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries announced it was going to begin installing new security features to try to combat theft. They weren't added in every liquor store, but all 36 liquor marts in Winnipeg, as well as locations in Brandon, Portage, and Selkirk, you will now find a security door, a security guard, checking and scanning your ID before you're allowed inside, Loren. Yeah, and it seemed like a, a big step to take at the time, but really simple in the end. And as you've been hearing in the news with Jeff Braun, they're a huge difference maker. So we have some numbers here to share. In September of 2019, liquor stores saw 1,815 thefts, 36 robberies. You fast forward to September of this year, and there was just 62 thefts and zero robberies. So a huge reduction there. October two years ago, more than 1,600 thefts. October this year, just 66. And so the math on that is that that's a 96% reduction Hmm. on thefts and robberies. We did ask Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries to join us for an interview to provide a bit more context to these numbers, you know, in terms of what other measures might have gone in place, because the doors weren't the only thing they were discussing a few years ago. They declined to to come on air with us, but did issue a statement from Manny Atwal, who is the president and CEO of MBLL. 
not only did he say that they're obviously very pleased with the success of these controlled entrances, the statement went on to say, quote, we recognize how stressful it was to work and shop in Winnipeg retail stores at that time. In fact, both our employees and customers at Liquor Marts with controlled entrances have told us how relieved they feel to return to a safer shopping and working environment in our stores. We are seeing positive customer satisfaction results as staff can now focus on serving customers who then get to experience the excellent service we're known for. And so I thought that was an important part of the statement because there's no question the impact to staff would have been immense in terms of just dealing with that threat on a day-to-day basis. I did the math just for the September month. I think thefts peaked in August and then started coming down a little bit in September, October, but they didn't come way down until those new measures were introduced. And so at 1,800 thefts, a month, you're talking, you know, 56, 60 times a day, depending on those numbers that robberies or thefts were occurring. I mean, that's a lot to imagine and think about. Not at every store. That's spread out over all the stores, of course. But I think that would have been a huge stressor for staff, guys. And and now now I'm curious, too, you know, was it, a, was it an annoying thing to think about or even worrisome thing to think about for customers? And how are you finding that experience now that you have to show your ID like that before you even get in the store, Brett? Yeah, I know because we had, uh, I think there were, we had some customers were intervening, right? I think there was video footage of customers tackling some of these uh, attempted thieves. And it was something that was on my mind, always wondering, like, is is a situation like that going to break out in this store? Am I, and what would I do? Would I step in? Would I just get out of the way? And now it's not something that I really have to worry about because often you'll be standing in that line waiting to get in. And you're waiting, you're waiting for like four or five minutes, and it's because they're essentially interrogating the person who's trying to get in. If they don't have the proper ID, they don't get in, or if they sense that this person is maybe already intoxicated, they won't get in. And sometimes that person will have to sort of hang their head in shame and walk out before they even get into the store. So uh, that's kind of annoying having to stand there and wait, but I think it's a small price to pay. And it makes me feel safer knowing that they are being that diligent, Greg, with uh, their screening process. Yeah, and it's not unfamiliar. It's not an unfamiliar process to any of us that uh, went to Nightclubs in the 1990s and early 2000s as security measures really got cranked up uh, during that point in time in that industry. So the idea of even having your your license scanned at some places is something that, that's been around for 20 plus years. And I would say in terms of uh, the liquor stores themselves... This solution beats the heck out of some of the other solutions that were really on the table and being proposed and contemplated. I don't know about Manitoba liquor stores, but I know when we had the discussion as a group and with our listeners, you know, some of the feedback was, well, what about the consumer distributors model? You'll remember consumer distributors uh, from way back in the 60s, I think they go as far back, 70s, 80s, where you filled out the little form. And that's how liquor stores were when they first started in Manitoba. There was a great big board. You went in, you filled in your sheet, and they gave you your booze. It wasn't like a typical shopping experience. So versus some of the other solutions they may have implemented, I think this is the one uh, that works best for consumers all around. We're asking you at 204-780-6868 to tell us about a time from your youth or it doesn't have to be a youth, but whether it's a sports or maybe something academic or some other sort of defeat that sticks with you. Or if you want to take it, as Greg put it, if you want to be positive, you can tell us about a triumph in that arena. Dwayne texting to say on the topic of win or lose, second 
is the first loser. <laughs> it's like Talladega Nights. If you're not first, you're last. Oh, yes. Oh, that's just ridiculous, son. You could be second. You could be third. You could be fourth. Oh, great quote. Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld always talks about the uh, the fact that, you know, you train for four years, you go to the Olympics, 100-meter dash, you run and you stick out your chin, you are the world champion, everybody knows who you are, silver medal, you lose by a nose or a chin, never, ever heard of you. Fair point. Yep. It's a fair point. Joanne says, I think I yearned the positive accolades and attention that I received when uh, winning in sports. I was invisible in my family. So when I was in high school, sports was my way of being noticed. I definitely gave it my all so we would win. So I was disappointed when we lost. And, uh, well, I was back to being invisible after that. So, well, Joanne, so hard on yourself. But, indeed, the the attention that we can get from the success in sports uh, might be one reason why people want to participate and uh this other one says i'm still proud of this achievement we're studying paid off i was a good student but definitely not a straight a student as i got further into high school i just had too much fun at the end of grade 12 i studied my butt off for the final physics exam i aced it scoring 100 percent excellent mom was proud got a big congrats from the teacher he seemed pleased even a big congrats from one of the top students who thought was a total snob Taught me a good life lesson, and that is be prepared. Got to study. Got to practice, Loren. Oh, man. Could you do a physics test now? No. <laughs> like like any – like I was just actually Googling. That's cosine, tangent. Like, what were the – is that what – Yeah, I think that's part <laughs> of the deal. Math equals force. There's acceleration. Yeah. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. No way. No way. I, I – I, I only could do it during that right. semester. And then that's as right. soon as the exam was written, I forgot it. That's yep. right. I, physics, calculus, chemistry, no problem. Ten days later, nope. We want to start this half hour by talking about how we often joke, Greg, that northwestern Ontario is really Manitoba East. Yeah, you could make that argument. I think some people not part of Ontario feel that way. There's a kinship between northwest Ontario and Manitoba and Kenora. Could be one of Winnipeg's largest bedroom communities, at least in the summertime. Whether you visit that part of our region once in a while, live there, or have a cottage east of the Manitoba-Ontario border, Loren, big news this weekend. Yeah, we're, of course, talking about the twinning of Highway 17, and, and it prompted further discussions amongst us about, well, what other roads could we look at, you know, if we had a, a bottomless pit of cash to actually improve or fix in this province. But first, let's just start with what's happening on Highway 17. The stretch of highway running from the Manitoba border to the Kenora Bypass will be twinned in three phases. The first phase is a six-kilometer stretch from the Manitoba border to Gundy Road, and that's part of an ongoing agreement, Greg, between the Ontario government and Indigenous groups in Kenora. So the second portion to be twinned is an 8.5-kilometer stretch between Highway 673 and Rush Bay Road. Lots of Manitobans know that point on the journey to Kenora. The final stretch run is 24 kilometers from Rush Bay Road to the Kenora Bypass. Caroline Mulrooney, Ontario's Minister of Transportation, and Greg Rickford, Minister of Indigenous Affairs, Northern Development, Mine, Natural Resources, and Forestry, and the Member of Provincial Parliament for Kenora Rainy River, say the plan is to have shovels in the ground for the first section this coming spring. In fact, I read that they may start clearing brush next month 
Very good news for any who use that stretch of the Trans-Canada Highway. And, Loren, you sort of touched on it here. Does that now put pressure on Manitoba to twin the section from just west of Falcon Lake to the Ontario border? I'd say, yeah. I would say, yes, it does. You know, uh, and pressure, you know, I don't know if I want to use the word pressure, but I think that once you, if you're talking about that, the necessity for that to be done, on the eastern portion of it, then I think it just makes sense to, for safety reasons, for economic reasons, to improve that section. Of course, money is a big part of this, Brett, but I think when we talk about some of those key corridors, that's one of them for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, how many... I know so many people who spend time either in the White Shell, the Falcon Lake area, West Hawk Lake, or they head into Ontario. Greg, I like how you refer to it as a bedroom community for Winnipeg because so many of us, in fact... Cottage country weather, when it first started, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the only reason, like we, uh, one of the, the current temperatures we would give was for Kenora, right? and the forecast was for Kenora, and I'm pretty sure the main reason was because our boss, Vic Grant, had a cabin out there. <laughs> so there you go, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's that indelible tie between that part of Ontario and Manitoba. And then that section of Trans-Canada Highway, like I said, just west of Falcon Lake to the, the border. And there, I think there are a couple of small areas where they've integrated turning lanes or they've got that neat little underpass uh, that happens at Falcon Lake. And if you want to go up to West Hawk Lake, they, they've done some neat things. However, is there a section of highway in the summertime more often closed than that area, that stretch between uh, the Ontario border and where it goes to two lanes? I don't think so. I think that is a real huge source of consternation for a lot of folks and it and can be a huge delay. Hours upon hours, sometimes close to an entire workday can be taken up when there are accidents on that stretch of highway. And actually, now that I think of it, isn't um, in the summertime, we often hear of delays of, from people, you know, looking to get out of town. But isn't that stretch of Highway 1 sort of east of Lajemodier, isn't that always a, a sort of like one of the biggest, busiest parts of the, the weekend traffic heading into the afternoon drive? You betcha. People heading to the White Shell, heading to northwest Ontario, Lake of the Woods and, and different parts of of that beautiful part of our country. So, yep, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a gigantic magnet for uh, folks that uh, are able to get away. I think we have to ask the question now then, you know, beyond Highway 1 and that section leading into Kenora, what other part of the province would you like to see them consider in terms of twinning or just improving the roads? Like, it's not until you kind of get off the beaten path, and I'm talking about getting off the number ones and the 75s and the 59s, that you realize there's a lot of roads in Manitoba that could really use some attention, not just twinning, but maybe just some paved shoulders or some improvements on the potholes or the bumps that go along the way. I think that I would pick for sure, heading into the White Shell, there's some sections along 44 and other that could use some work. I obviously live south of the city, so I'd love to see 59 twinned all the way to the border. Yes. I don't know if that would ever happen, but man, a lot of people use that road, and it gets real dicey at times with the number of vehicles on it, Brett. Oh, and it just, I, when, when the, once you get to the part of that highway where it goes down to single file in each direction, I always feel bad, and I shouldn't feel bad, because I do the speed limit. 
Yeah, how dare you, Brad? Right. And then, people, then people get are annoyed. And they're super annoyed. Yeah. They, they're riding my tail. Uh, so that's that's frustrating, especially if the weather is dicey, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, you know raining or if it's uh, snowing. And I remember, I can't remember which highway it is, but I was heading to Pine Falls, and it was a highway I'd never been on. And there's one portion of it where it's kind of windy. So I was driving a little bit under the speed limit and there was a guy in a truck who was on my tail the whole time and it just stressed me out. So yeah, anywhere they can twin a highway, I'd, <laughs> I'm all in for it. <laughs> I well, guess that's the easy answer, right? Twin them all. I mean, that's not what sure. we're saying. <laughs> when I was in California the, the week before last, I couldn't believe you know the the highway or the posted speed limit on these freeways in southern california is typically 55 miles an hour it's gone up over the years there's sections where it might be 65 maybe 70 but i'm going to tell you 90 miles an hour about 140k is not unusual at all not unusual at all and i don't mind driving fast but there is a limit for me yeah. yeah, I yeah. remember I was in a in a taxi in Houston, and we were on the freeway, and the cab, it was like a, not quite a minivan, but it was a, I don't, can't remember what kind of vehicle it was, but it was shaking, <laughs> <laughs> because we were doing like 95, oh. I think, and I, I don't know that I'd ever been in a car that was going that fast. No so. kidding. 90 miles an hour is 145K. Wow. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah. That's yeah. insane. Hey, one of our listeners says, you know, it doesn't have to be twinning. This is his list or their list. Pave Highway 5, Highway 34, Highway 23, Highway 253. They haven't been paved since they were built 50 years ago, oh. according to this listener. And they say holes the size of basketballs all along in the middle of the road or semis get stuck right in the pavement. They shut them down in the spring. Those roads are horrendous, they say. So it could be something simple. It doesn't have to be a massive twinning project. It was just over a year ago the Manitoba government announced it was creating a new retail crime task force to try to combat the growing number of thefts in stores across the province. Yeah, and we know that liquor stores were part of that equation back then. Last hour, we talked about thefts in liquor stores and how those new security measures that were brought in in 2019 have really cut back theft and robberies by as much as 96%. But we know that liquor stores weren't the only ones dealing with this. Grocery stores were seeing a rise in cheese and meat were being stolen, clothing stores and more. And in numbers that were actually provided to us last year... Indications were that retail theft had actually increased by 125% since 2017. So the question we're asking this morning, we know we've seen some improvements at liquor stores. Have other things been done to make a difference in retail theft, or is it still a huge problem today, Greg? Yeah, and if memory serves, I think we had reports of major retail chains skipping over Winnipeg in terms of their expansion plans all together because of the prevalence of theft in our community. John Graham is the Prairie Director of Government Relations for the Retail Council of Canada and joins us now. Good morning, John. Hey, good morning. Am I remembering that correctly, John, that there were reports of a a couple major uh, chains that were saying, yeah, we'd like to come to Winnipeg, but... Yeah, yeah, certain parts of Winnipeg in particular, right? The high, uh, the hotspot downtown was uh, uh, a real negative to attracting uh, growth. Of course, there's been a great disruptor of the pandemic over the past 20 months that's uh, uh, changed how retail is looking at expansions. But uh, certainly, uh, you know, the, the... the, the issue of retail crime is still ever existing. 
What are you hearing from stores now that now when it comes to theft, John? Yeah, well, what, you know, I certainly admire the uh, the success that uh, Mental Liquor Mart's had, but as you can understand, it's really a unique situation where most retail can't. Uh, uh, you know, uh, re- re- restrict access to stores or certainly would not want to. It's all about you know, when you're competing with online, trying to attract people to your stores, families, children, not require ID, uh, you know, display product with, uh, very accessibly. And those are all features that are also create higher risk when it comes to theft. So we're still dealing with the everyday um, shoplifting and that's returned as more people are returning to stores and that confidence with the vaccination uh, uh, will result in what we expect to be a really busy uh, Christmas season. But organized retail crime is really where we've really focused, and that's uh, ever-present. You know, it was soft in the first wave of the pandemic, but it's returned, and it's, you know, unfortunately an ugly business uh, that uh, impacts retail significantly. Talk to us what you mean by that, John, when you say organized retail crime. Well, there is, uh, there has been since the uh, you know, little days of uh, Greg taking a chocolate bar from a local store, perhaps not accusing you, uh, to uh, you know the, the very basic harmless, except for financially, obviously to the businesses crime. But there are, uh, there is a business out there. There is very much people that perceive their job to rob retail, uh, to convert those products, whether it's. Uh, meats, cheeses, uh, high-end fashion, uh, electronics to cash, to drugs, to, uh, and it's, um, it's very targeted and, and sometimes very violent. So how do we combat this? Is that a shift as well, John, this idea that there are, you know, basically uh, could be people with shopping lists going out and taking certain things uh, in order to, to complete some sort of uh, transaction outside of this, of, of, of a retailer versus, uh, you know, crime of opportunity? Yeah, I think that what we uh, are seeing is that uh, organized retail crime in some form has existed for years and years and years. Uh, but what we're seeing is it's increasingly more violent. It's increasingly more national or global. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it's uh, also uh, very expensive and puts uh, lives at risk. So we have seen retailers invest significantly in technology, in store staff, in systems to counteract that. But as you mentioned at the top of this piece, that uh, the Mantle Retail Security Task Force uh, has been working collaboratively uh, to really target that most violent, that most prolific organized retail crime. And some amazing collaboration between police forces, RCMP, Brandon, Winnipeg Police Justice, Crown Retail, at really strategies to go after uh, that most prolific and most organized. Can you expand on that? We just have 30 seconds here, John, but I'm curious how that collaboration works. I understand it'd be with the investigative part with the police, but how can retail stores help out with that part about, you know, cracking down on the organized retail crime? Yeah, well, when it comes to, uh, there's, we don't have enough time to get into all the preventative measures that retailers are putting in place, of course, but store design and excess customer service to really uh, make it inconvenient to, uh, for someone to steal. But uh, when it comes to the collaboration that we're seeing, we're instead looking at individual cases, one-off, one store, one incident, uh, we're working together on data collection and sharing uh, amongst multiple banners, multiple police forces too. And what we're seeing is patterns of those, you know, the top 10% that are causing significant risk of, of violence, of costs, and, uh, and really going after those bad guys. 
So we're really quite encouraged about where we're heading on this. John Graham, Prairie Director of Government Relations for the Retail Council of Canada, joining us live on 680 CJOB. John, thank you very much. No, thank you. This time next week, we will know which CFL Western team will be coming to Winnipeg to face the Blue Bombers in that Western final at IG Field. Will it be the Calgary Stampeders or the Saskatchewan Rough Riders? And which team would the Blue and Gold prefer to play, Greg? Oh, I don't even have to ask Bob Irvin. Clearly it's Saskatchewan. I mean, the Stamps dominated the Blue Bombers in Calgary (laughs) on Saturday night in that 13-12 comeback win at McMahon Stadium. Bob Irving is the voice of the Blue Bombers. And, Bob, if Calgary's coming here on the 5th of December, fold the tents, right? Well, I would say no. Uh, Don't fold the tents if Calgary's coming here. As a matter of fact, the domination in that game was uh, authored by the Blue Bombers for about 54 minutes. And then, you know, they had a couple of breakdowns in the last six minutes with some substitutes on defense that threw things off in terms of their communication and Calgary rallied to win the game. If that's a regular season game, you know, the Bombers would be beside themselves that they lost it. But if it's a regular season game, I don't think the things that happened in the last six minutes would, uh, would have happened. But the first 54, uh, the Bombers pitched a shutout. Uh, they made Bo Levi. Mitchell looked uh, very ordinary or less than ordinary. When Zach Kolaris was in the game, their offense was humming. Uh, I was very impressed with the Bombers. I know the last six minutes and the fans are freaking out that they lost the game. But look, it's one of these late season games with nothing at stake in the standings. And you've got backups in and, you know, things went wrong for the Bombers. They had some busts in the back end and with young Drew Brown in at quarterback, they were life and death to make a first down, which again is not surprising. So... Yeah, I mean, 12-2 and two would have been better than 11-3, and three, but it was still a remarkable season for the Blue Bombers. Uh, some record-setting performances on defense, and they go into that West Final uh, very healthy. Nobody got hurt. Brandon Alexander took a big shot, but he was out there in the second half watching the game, and I, I saw him walk off the field afterward, and, you know, he looked like uh, he was doing okay, so I think he'll be ready for the December 5th West Final. So, again, we're thinking whether it's Calgary or Saskatchewan. If, if it is the Stampeders, there's something that could impact them coming. We're hearing about vaccinations, rumblings that some of the members of the Stamps are not vaccinated. What have you heard, Bob? Well, I've heard the same thing, and I don't know how this is going to play out. There are new rules about, you know, trans-border travel coming uh, at the end of the month, and uh, teams, even t- the team from the West that goes to the Grey Cup will, will have some issues going to Hamilton if they have players who aren't vaccinated. So I would say for now, Loren, it's kind of shrouded in mystery. We'll have to see uh, what happens in that regard. But uh, I think it was Dave Dickinson, the coach of the Stampeders, who said, you know, we won't be able to go there with a full with a full unit. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, we don't know, but that's one of the issues we'll be watching very closely as we after the semifinal game this weekend, and we then find out who's playing here in the West Final December 5th. Wednesday is the 30th anniversary of the first ever Grey Cup played in Winnipeg, and we should probably have you back then, Bob, but how did uh, the Blue Bombers hosting that game change the CFL and the Grey Cup as we know it? Well, it was the first time, you're talking about 1991, uh, the first time the game had ever been purchased by a team. And Cal Murphy was the GM at that time. 
he and the club's board of directors bought the game from the league uh, because they felt they could sell it out and make money off it, and they did. And it was an enormous success. I can still recall the the week leading up to the game with all the parties and celebrations and how impressed everybody was at the job that uh, Winnipeg did in hosting the game. And it really uh, started the you know the pattern where the league then awarded the game to every city across uh, across the league. Saskatchewan had never hosted a Grey Cup game, but the Bombers opened the door for that. And ever since the game has been played in every CFL city, as opposed to the warm, uh, warm weather cities or, you know, the ones with a covered stadium. So yeah, that was a real landmark Grey Cup game. Uh, it was very cold <laughs> Grey Cup Sunday, but it was sure warm and friendly, uh, and everything involved the week leading up. Um, part of that conversation, I think, on Wednesday will be the fact, Bob, that I don't know anyone, including myself who was in that stadium that day amongst the 51,000 or so that showed up. They didn't even have, at least I don't remember them having ticket takers that day because if you were coming to the stadium, you'd better have a ticket because there was nowhere to sit. Otherwise, it was jam-packed, but nobody really laments how cold it was. It's more of a badge of honour to say that you were there. And yeah. so as we head towards December 5th, I know I'm keeping one eye on the forecast, and it's almost too bad the game wasn't this weekend because things are looking pretty good uh, in the forecast for this coming Sunday. But but the weather really shouldn't matter in the end, should it, Bob? It, it, it should almost be, uh, look look what we're doing despite or in spite of the weather. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now, if we get a blizzard or something wacky like that, which just throws the game off in terms of how the athletes can perform, that's one thing. I looked at the long range for December 5th, and it says minus 8 or minus 9. Well, you know what? When the Bombers played in Calgary on Saturday night, it was minus 8 when the game started. And and the teams functioned very well. The ball, there was no problem throwing the ball. The only problem throwing the ball was the quarterback's uh, didn't play very well, but Zach Kolaris, he was, had short sleeves on, and he was firing the ball all over the field. So in terms of the the players, I don't think if it's minus 8 or minus 9, that's going to be an issue. And for the fans, uh, even minus 8, for heaven's sakes, those of us who live here, that's not cold. Come on. Uh, you know, so I, you know, I think it's going to work out very, very well. And I'm with you, Greg. This is sort of an adventure, right? Hey, we're going to the game, so we have to wear a parka or whatever, a Canada Goose uh, jacket. Uh, you know, it'll, it'll all be part of the adventure of going to the first West final in Winnipeg since 1972. And let's be honest, if there is a blizzard, you still get to say you did that, too. You know, sure, stand course, out yeah. there, get smacked in the face by the wind and the snow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No. And, you know, we're hardy folks here, right? And these are the kinds of things. I think as a guy who... Uh, likes to see the athletes have a chance to perform at their best. I would hope for decent weather so they can do that. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, whatever happens with the weather and the conditions and all the rest of it, this is going to be a day to remember one way or the other. Coach, the show is tomorrow night this week, right, Bob? Yes, it's tomorrow night. We have the Jets in Pittsburgh tonight, of course. Sid Crosby and the Penguins are here. So Mike O'Shea and I will be on tomorrow night at 7.05 to talk about talk a little bit about what happened in Calgary, but more look ahead to what's coming up in a couple of weeks and, uh, you know, rehash the season that the Bombers had. All right, Bob Irving, thank you for the weekly visit, as always, sir. Okay, my pleasure, you guys. And the Jets, by the way, the pregame show starts at 5.30 tonight. Puck drop at 7.30. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Well, normally home games in Winnipeg start at 7. Okay. During the week. It's 7.30 tonight. So that half hour just cuts into my...
loophole schedule, my ability to stay up and get your extra large steep tea tomorrow. Brett, prepare yourself. All right. All right. Just know by the sound of his boots in the hallway how the game went. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's the winning skip or the losing stomp. <laughs> That's a fair, accurate, fair and accurate representation of how Greg behaves. <laughs> right now, I want to talk about how the Olympic Winter Games are scheduled to get underway in Beijing, China on February 4th. And of course, for many, figure skating, skiing, luge, and bobsleigh events are very popular. Yeah, don't forget, NHL players will once again be representing their respective countries this time around. Plenty of Winnipeg Jets will be there, which will and should add to the excitement for Manitobans and fans of the Jets around the country in North America. But there's another sport where Manitobans could be, and I'll go out on a limb and say Loren should be representing this country. Yeah, it was the Manitobans I was watching. We were watching in our house last night because, of course, the Olympic curling trials are underway in Saskatoon. Ted Wyman is there on behalf of Post Media and the Winnipeg Sun. Good morning, Ted. Good morning. How are you guys? We're great. And you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's actually hard to keep up with all the Manitobans to be cheering for. They're scattered throughout other lineups from other uh, provinces, but there's three Manitoba-based women's teams, two Manitoba-based men's teams, and... We want to start with the women, where I think many might argue if, if a Manitoba team doesn't make it, it would be considered an upset. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. Obviously, there are some teams that are not from Manitoba that have a good chance here and have won before, for instance, Rachel Homan. But Rachel Homan lost her first two games here, and that is a very surprising result for her. In fact, we know that no team has ever gone 0-2 to start the Olympic trials and come back to win it. So it will be a very long road for her. And that kind of, you know, definitely opens the door more for teams like Jennifer Jones, Tracy Flurry, and Carrie Anderson. And Flurry and uh, Jones, the Flurry team is from East St. Paul. Jones represents St. Vitale Curling Club in Winnipeg. They're both undefeated. Jones going 3-0 and to this point. Flurry's 2-0. and Maybe the biggest surprise out of it all, though, is that Carrie Anderson, who is the two-time Scotties champion, has lost two of her three games and, in fact, lost to the very surprising Jacqueline Harrison out of Dundas, Ontario, last night. Well, we'll try and put that aside, a disappointment. But as you look at the standings right now, obviously two Manitoba teams at the top. As you mentioned, Ted, how many losses can you realistically get away with in order to end up in the playoffs of this event, Ted? Three. And uh, it's it's three Three may only get you into a tiebreaker. And, you know, four is a 500 record. It's very unlikely that that's going to get anybody into the playoffs. Uh, in the past, when it's been a nine-team field, uh, three has been the threshold. And realistically, you know, you're going to want to be um, right up there at 7-1 uh, and one or 6-2 and two to have your best opportunity. And, you know, if you do get, uh, say, a 7-1 and one record or 8-0, I, I don't imagine that's going to happen, but it's possible. Um, you, you would get a direct entry into the final, and that is a, a huge piece of this. It's, it's such a great tournament. It's the best curling tournament you're, you'll ever get to see because you've got nine of the best women's teams and nine of the best men's teams in Canada and the world, in fact. And they play every single game like it's the playoff game at the Briar or uh, at the Scotties. It's so intense, and, and you really can't afford losses. And 
they play that way, and it's just it makes for great entertainment if if you love curling. Now the Manitoba-based men's teams, um, maybe we put it this way, less favored than the women's teams. Yeah, yeah, they're less favored. Uh, the top four seeds here would be Brad Gushu, Brad Jacobs, Kevin Cooey, and Brendan Botcher. Um, and you know, there's there's lots of other teams that have the ability to win this tournament. The truth is. Among those that have the ability but maybe are not favorites are the Mike McEwen team out of Winnipeg and the uh, Jason Gunlickson team out of Morris Manitoba. I don't think, you know, Jason Gunlickson is there. He competes all the time at this level, and he has the ability to win this. You know, I think it would be a pretty big surprise if his team was able to win this. The Mike McEwen team, Mike McEwen's been to the final of the Olympic trials before. In 2017, he lost lost on last rock to Kevin Cooey. And, uh, you know, they, they're a team that, always is right there in the mix. They haven't come through and won the biggest of events yet, but you know, when they get hot, they're a team that, and especially Mike McEwen, he is a, a hot and cold skip. And when he gets rolling, he is very tough to contend with. And in his first game here this week, McEwen was by far the best player on the ice. So that's a good sign for that team. Ted, I know a lot of reporters are back at it, covering it live in person for, for the first time in a while, and the, and the audience is back a bit too. I was trying to tell from what I was seeing last night if it's a full house. What's the crowd been like so far? Well, definitely not full. This building, uh, Sastel Centre, actually holds 15,000. It's uh, mm-hmm. basically the same size as Canada Life Centre in Winnipeg, um, and they're not really using the upper decks here, so it's basically just the lower bowl. And I think I didn't look at the attendance for every game, but the very first draw, which is really well attended usually, was about 5,000. Um, you know, it's an interesting question that you bring up because it's, it's not the kind of numbers that we've seen in the past, especially for things like the Olympic trials and the Briar, which in, you know, in years ago were being played in places like Calgary and Edmonton and getting full houses. That's not really happening with curling anymore, and I don't think it's a COVID-related thing. It just seems like the attendance has not been in the same realm as it once was. I think a big reason for that is that it's such a great game to watch on television when you've got the commentators and you can hear what the curlers have to say and you can see every shot. You can't see it as well from inside the arena. So people go to these things for the atmosphere. They go for the party. They go to support the athletes who are on the on the ice. And not as many seem to show up. I just don't know. I, I, it is not a great crowd so far we'll see if it gets better by the weekend um and you know there's a lot of factors in that including those that i just said and of course covid people aren't all ready to get out there and be in those kind of environments i'm with you ted i don't know if there's a better sport made for television than curling and uh the numbers really bear that out some curling events rival the ratings that nhl hockey gets across this country it's a very popular sport before we let you run here can you give us a little bit of an idea of what's coming up today for the manitoba teams if you would um, well, it's a big day for uh, McEwen and Gunlickson because they play each other. So uh, that's, uh, that's one that's really going to be on the radar for everybody in Manitoba. Um, and, you know, that's a, a long-standing rivalry between those two. They've played in Manitoba finals. Gunlickson won the last one, which allowed him to be Team Manitoba at the Briar for two consecutive years because they didn't actually play in 2020. They didn't have a provincial championship. McEwen has been at those priors as well, but he was a wild card team. So that's going to be a great matchup between two guys who know each other very, very well. And, you know, it's a big, big day for Carrie Anderson because she's got to come back. 
from losing last night. Uh, she blew a three-point lead in the last in the ninth and tenth ends against Jacqueline Harrison, who you know a lot of people didn't know whether Harrison was going to be able to win very many games here. But Harrison's already beaten Rachel Holman and Carrie Anderson, two of the very top seeds. So it's a really big day for for Anderson to get back on track. Jennifer Jones will be looking to get to four and zero. Um, that's a huge one for them. And we haven't even really talked that much about the Tracy Fleury team. They are the number one ranked team in the entire world right now because of the incredible season that they're having. I think they're the absolute favorites to win this thing, and they are 2-0 to this point, and we'll be looking to improve on that today. Ted Wyman, Post Media, Winnipeg Sun, joining us live on 680 CJOB from the Olympic Curling Trials in Saskatoon. Ted, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. We're asking you this morning to tell us about a past defeat, whether it's in sports or academics or something else, like Loren had a piano recital go not necessarily as planned, and or if you want to go the other way and tell us about a triumph. And Greg, we got a, a one of our runners up here, a great story about slow pitch. Ah, oh, slow pitch, some great times. In our early 20s, my friends and I played slow pitch tournaments every other weekend. We won a couple and lost a crap load. One summer we lost out a few times to a pretty good team from one of the neighboring towns, but they just weren't fun to play against. At all. We ended up getting uh, lucky in a couple of games during provincials and played them in the final. We were down 12 to 5, switched up a couple of players for the bottom of the fourth, had a three up, three down inning. Then we got to bat and scored 21 <laughs> runs in a single inning. We won 26 14, was so satisfying. They didn't play together the next year as they were just screaming at each other that last <laughs> inning as we were just getting lucky with so many of our hits. Right on. That's a great story. That's the worst playing against a team that takes themselves so seriously. Oh, yes, yes. Like when I played with the, my buddies at Great West Life, I was on the, the, the DI Joes, the Disability Insurance Joes, and we were always like a C Division team. We were the we were always the last team out of the clubhouse. We were the fun team, but there the, some of the there is a team, I think, they were called the Cheeky Monkeys. Pretty sure they practiced on in their free time. They were nuts. Practice? Yeah, they were super good, but they That's were so competitive. Uh... <laughs> so competitive. But uh, Lorraine, this is, after all, a competition, and Lorraine is our winner. Lorraine. Lorraine. <laughs> I just mixed them up. Lorraine's going to read Lorraine. Oh, boy. <laughs> when I was in high school, I took a downturn in academics and started not turning in assignments, skipping classes, etc. I'm just not interested in school. It was apparent that my graduation was at risk. I had one teacher who saw me and took me under his wing and started to talk with me on his own time, helping me with working on assignments after school, not just his class homework, but other subjects as well. At the end of the year, I had a 49% in my one class. I would not graduate. Mm. I felt a failure after all his hard work. I had let him down as well as myself. My mentor went to the teacher of the subject I had failed and negotiated. If I would t- attend school and do an essay while everyone else was off, he would give me a 50R, which would allow me to graduate with everyone else. That was definitely a triumph for me and even more for that teacher. I will forever be grateful to Mr. Morlock. Lorraine, tremendous story. Thanks to all who shared, but Lorraine, congrats. You're going to the Western final. Thanks to Mr. Morlock.
In a moment, we are going to speak to an author about who's written a book on career transitions. Are you thinking of switching careers? So looking forward to that conversation. Uh, but before we do that, just wanted to, because we did, we've got all kinds of feedback this morning on text uh, from you on the highways that you would like to see some improvement on. This is a, inspired by the, the fact that they're going to twin the Trans-Canada from the Manitoba-Ontario border to Kenora at last, at mm-hmm. long last. And uh, we just asked, what would you like to see improved, whether it's the twinning of another highway or just like maybe adding like some extra, uh, you know, the paving of shoulders or whatever. Uh, feel free or to just weigh in. pavement, period. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. One of our listeners listed a long list of highways that basically haven't been touched since the 50 years they were constructed. My dad is listening this morning, Loren. He says that the addition of passing lanes on 16, 10, and 6 have been a good compromise versus twinning those highways. And I would agree. They have made a, a real difference heading up to my brother's cottage and then uh, heading back to Minidosa or down to Brandon from Minidosa. Yeah, the Highway 16 now at least from the number one turnoff to Minidosa and a little bit beyond is a much better road than it was even just a couple of years ago. Same goes for Highway 10 from Brandon to Minidosa. Some people are writing in about the fact that Riding Mountain National Park is a really big destination for many people. It's a tourist draw. The trip from Minidosa North to Riding Mountain could definitely use some work. That's a pretty rough highway it's in rough shape at some spots there's could not necessarily even passing lanes but i would argue another layer of pavement would Mm -hmm. be appreciated on that one it's pretty rough go yeah how about oh sorry brett but how about you guys both mentioned 59 this morning yep south of the city and i like this uh suggestion twin highway 59 south at least to the steinbach turnoff i think that's highway 52 yeah, I would yeah. love to see that twinned, the Highway 59 South. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it can be, it's not so much for me, it's the, the fact that people really like to rip down that stretch of highway, and I just don't want to be that one person who's slowing every, everyone down because, God forbid, I do the speed limit, Loren. Well, you've also added just so much more growth in this area. It's a really fast-growing area in terms of the expansion and communities in Ildeshane and then Niverville. Of course, Steinbeck's seen some real growth. And then all the towns around there, New Bothwell, Cleefeld, they all have little subdivisions in there now that are much – there's so many more people who are hitting up 59 to travel into the city. And then if you go even further south, you know, you hit the border and and there are truckers and others who will use 59 as an an alternate route over 75. And so it's busy for a whole host – of reasons it doesn't have paved shoulders the whole way it can get pretty rough in spots so i i just think you know in terms of again a corridor it wouldn't hurt to have that one looked at if if we again had this bottomless bit of money Sure. And of course, uh, we didn't have to say it because nobody jumped all over the perimeter. I think uh, we can uh, give thumbs up, but not everybody agrees with the amount of money that they're planning to spend on that south perimeter. But Dan pointed out the frustration. Boy, oh boy, they just built this incredible interchange at Highway 59 or Lajemodiere on the north side of the perimeter. And uh, things are moving so brilliantly through there. And now, as Dan points out, they're putting traffic signals at Wenzel and the perimeter. And that just boggles the mind of certain people, uh, especially, like I said, when you just built this, uh, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars interchange uh, just to the west of that. Uliana says Highway 8 
needs to be twinned. So that's what I always get them mixed up. Nine is Main Street, eight is McPhillips. That sounds right to heading me. Heading out of town? Okay. Yeah, because I was on seven yesterday to Stonewall. So, yes. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Yeah, that one, because, yeah, it's twinned, I think, at first, and then it goes down to single file. That's a huge pain if you're heading out to Winnipeg Beach or Gimli. Um, that's always a massive pain because if you get somebody, you know, towing a boat or a trailer. Sure. Uh, and no, not like no ill will towards them, nope. but it's just they're going to slow things down, and the lineups are huge. And then you're just trying to play a leapfrog, and then people are end up trying to pass like four or five cars at once, and it's just unsafe when that happens. I've seen so many near misses on that highway. Uh, it's like a game of chicken. But Fortier, have we reached our guest? We have. Excellent. Well, let's just fire that up here. But thanks for all the feedback on the highways. Uh, We appreciate it. And that's a conversation I'm sure will continue throughout the day. But we want to talk right now about how the pandemic has changed the way many of us work and the way that many of us feel about work. Well, including our own here at Chorus Radio Winnipeg, there are a lot of employers that have sent staff home. And 20 months later, many have chosen to remain at home if their employer is giving them that option. There are also many who can't wait to get back to the office. And then, of course, there are some that uh, never had a say in the matter, right, Loren? As their jobs require them uh, to stay at work. We've talked an awful lot about the change that's brought to the workplace uh, since the pandemic started. And then, of course, there's that whole group of people who might be deciding to quit their jobs altogether. Together, Different surveys have shown anywhere between 20, maybe even 25% of the population are ready to resign and move on to a different job. Might be, might still be in their current field of work. And then there are people who are just considering a different career entirely. And if you're in that boat, our next guest has some advice for you. Randy Benator is the author of a new book. Awaken to Your Calling, A Guide to Discovering Your Career Path and Life Direction. She's Randy is also a career and life coach and joins us now. Good morning, Randy. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time. I know we had some issues with our phone lines this morning, so I appreciate your patience. And, and uh, speaking of patience, I don't think people have much anymore. If they're not happy with what they're doing, it sounds like people are ready to move on. So what prompted your book? What was behind it in terms of what you might have been hearing from your own clients? Well, I've been working with clients for over 22 years and um, and helping with career change and career direction and life direction and with transitions. And this has been a huge transition for so many people this time recently. And for a lot of people, it's making them question, you know, is it time for a change? Is it time for something different? And so a lot of people are coming to me with those questions of, you know, I want to do something really meaningful. I want to do something that I enjoy more, and I haven't really been doing that. So it's kind of a wake-up call for some people. For some people, it's just, hey, I want to, you know, keep doing what I'm doing, or I want to find a different job that's similar to what I'm doing. But a lot of people are also looking at what might be something new and different that's more aligned with my talents and my interests and the things I really enjoy doing. Randy, for some people, making a change in career simply isn't an option based on the the peripheral things in one's life. But we're seeing a lot of changes right now. In fact, it's it's part of the reason we're seeing shortages in terms of of employable people, people who have their hands up and in line to get jobs because they are making that that change. So has this been the right time for many people to just reevaluate and go, you know what? Things have been pretty tough over the last 20 months anyway. I might as well make a U-turn or or uh, take that uh, road less traveled. 
Yes, I think for a lot of people, it's a time of reevaluation. Um, for some people, they're already been doing something that's a good fit for them and for what they're good at and what they enjoy and where their skills and talents are. But for some people, it's really been a time to reevaluate and step back, both career and life. I see a lot of people making life transitions as well. So um, it is an opportunity to really do some deeper exploration. Is this the right fit for me? Do I want to move forward in the same way I've been going already? Or is it a time where something's wanting to shift and something new is wanting to emerge? So for a lot of people who I work with, they're wanting to make some kind of career life transition into something new and different. And I'm helping them explore and figure that out. And the book is also to help people do that. So hopefully it will help people who are struggling with those kind of questions. What kind of things hold people back from making a, a change? If, they, if they've been thinking about it for a while, maybe a few weeks, a few months, even a few years, but they just can't seem to take the plunge. You know, it's a great question. I think it's a lot of different things for different people. Sometimes it's fear, as simple as that. We're comfortable. Something's familiar. It's something we know. And it's hard to think about doing something different than what is familiar. Uh, And then sometimes it could be financial concerns like, well, I make good money doing this or I've made enough money doing this. And will I make enough doing something different? And so there's a, a question of like, is there a way to make this change and have it be viable for me? And for some of those people, I recommend, well, maybe there's something you can even do on the side and see if it grows enough to the point where it can become the income that it can be. And not everyone can do that, but for some people they can. That's how I started my work. I had a job and I started doing it on the side like over 22 years ago. <laughs> and um, and then as it grew and grew, I cut back at my job and then I eventually was able to make the leap and totally do my new thing. So it had to happen more in a building a bridge way than a, taking a leap way for me. And that's true for a lot of people. So I think the financial concerns can be part of it. But often there is a way to still make that transition, especially if you find something that really matches what you're good at and where your skills and talents are and where your interests are, you're often going to be much more successful at it than something that doesn't really match those things. Randy, just 30 seconds left here, so I apologize if it can't be answered in that. But what's the first step then? Sure. Like, What's the first thing one should do if you're saying, you know what, I'm not happy. I want to make a move. Now what? Um, do some deeper exploration and look at what kinds of things you do enjoy and where your skills are and work you've done, what were the parts you enjoyed the most? What kinds of things are satisfying to you? What are your interests? Do some deeper exploration. And the book has um, two chapters that are full of exploration exercises, but you can do them on your own too in different ways. But that's, I really feel like people need to do that to get to what are those key themes. And then once you have those, okay, what could be really a good match for me? Randy, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate this. You're very welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. The name of the book is Awaken to Your Calling, a guide to discovering your career path and life direction. Randy Benator is the author of this book. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.